there are a lot of good organizations doing a lot of good in Dallas, but how do we see a transformation of our community in such a way that people prosper broadly? Michelle Kinder has been working in the nonprofit community for more than 20 years here. She has some thoughts to share. Stay tuned for Good God. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm George Mason, your host, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the program, Michelle Kinder. Michelle, Thank you, George. we're Happy glad to, to have you again. Uh, Michelle is a, uh, an advocate for social change, and she uh, works with leaders, and she writes, and she uh, talks about this in our community and has a lot of experience in the nonprofit sector, uh, having spent 20 years with the Momentus Institute, uh, working especially uh, with children and families on social and emotional health and trying to improve the lives of people in especially at-risk communities in Dallas. So you have um, so much insight to share with us and you've been doing this, Michelle, even in these last months since you left Momentus. Uh, every time I turn around, there's another op-ed from Michelle, uh, and it's being um, talked about uh, in the circles I travel in, and, and we're delighted about uh, the contribution you're making uh, in you. this new way. Thank you so much. That's great to hear. Yes. So one of the big things that you said uh, to Dallas after leaving the Momentus Institute was that you think we've got to change the way we work. Mm -hmm. In the social sector, uh, we, we have, <clears throat> if I could say it this way, it, summarizing what I heard you write and, and claim, there, there are two very significant things that have to shift. The first is that we have to learn to serve with mm -hmm. uh, the people that we're working uh, to, to help and, uh, and not for them, but with them, giving them agency, helping uh, to listen to what they have to say. And secondly, we have to learn to work uh, with other nonprofits and get out of our silos and have a, a grander vision of uh, who's doing what, how, and those sorts of things. So could you tease that out for us a little bit? How did you come to those two important observations mm -hmm. about where we are in Dallas right now? Mm -hmm. um, the first one has just captured me completely recently. And mm -hmm. I can think back to the Michelle of 10 or 15 or 20 years ago that when I thought about, well, who's at the table um, efficiency won out in my brain over uh, like true deep change. And uh -huh. that's really shifted. So I would think, well, we should have other folks that, but that takes too much time. Or, uh -huh. um, but you know, that's more complicated or more dramatic or all the, the, the flares people throw up that mm -hmm. keep us from doing the deep with work. Mm -hmm. um, now I can't even uh, stand being at a table of all white people. Yeah, <laughs> like right. it just feels like, what's happening here? Why, yeah. why, who's at this table? Why are we okay with it? Who's mm -hmm. not? Why yes. are they not? And, and why do the representatives of the, the communities that are most impacted by the problems we're solving for not being at this table, why is that not making all of our heads pop off? Like mm -hmm. it feels that Yes. shocking and urgent to me right. now. And so, um, you know, so now I, I feel like 
if we could just begin to sort of stoke that fire in all of us where we start looking around. Every single one of us can do that. Mm -hmm. Every table we're at, look at who's there. Think about who's not there. Right. Think about all, all the things that have come to pass in our history here in Dallas that have made it really easy for some of us to get to those tables and completely impossible for other people. And what, what I'm worried about is that if we stay on this path, we will self-perpetuate the kind of philanthropic and nonprofit community that feels great to the givers and the doers, but is not designed to solve problems. It's designed to, to just do enough mm -hmm. that um, people kind of get what they, the, the people who are holding power and have their needs met get enough to mm -hmm. feel good about it. And that sounds really harsh. But I don't is, mean it harsh. I, I understand, but this is, this is where you're, you're driving us toward the question of structural social mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. And this makes, I think, um, many people who are traditionally in prosperous and privileged parts of, of our community, this makes makes them nervous mm -hmm. uh, because we have, whether we are fully conscious of it or not, we have uh, intentionally developed uh, ways in which we have organized our lives in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our work life and, and religious communities so that we will reinforce mm -hmm. uh, these sorts of things that end up with a Dallas mm -hmm. that to some of us seems to be booming and prosperous mm -hmm. and we don't actually see that Dallas is at the very top of the list mm -hmm. in cities in America of inequality in income, in racial and ethnic disparity, in fact, as you know, the Urban Institute study placed us 274 out of 274 mm -hmm. cities. Mm -hmm. This is a shocking mm -hmm. uh, notion in terms of inclusion and participation in, in prosperity and opportunity. So um, to change that, Michelle, mm -hmm. is going to take some very deliberate work on our part what are some of those things that you think have to happen in Dallas to get our attention that will make us realize that we're making progress and we, we are changing? Mm. I, I so appreciate everything you just said because I do think it, it makes people nervous. It makes me nervous. Like mm -hmm. it forces us to look at, hey, <coughs> I, I'll speak for myself. I thought I was playing by all the rules that yes. I understood. So I gave my life to this nonprofit work, mm -hmm. which may in fact be perpetuating the problem. Oh, it's painful, isn't it? Right, and that's a and, and, hard And to tilt. a church as well. Right, to a church, right. to wealthy people who give generously. Right. That's a hard thing to grapple with yes. that may be um, the rule book is just a chapter, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and it's a chapter that privileges a very small group of people in our city. And mm -hmm. so uh, the first thing to me that would show that we're on the right path is like, are, are we willing to grapple with that question? Mm -hmm. Like, are, are we 
anti-fragile enough yes. to just grapple with this idea that maybe mm-hmm. um, what we consider the whole picture and the 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 recipe for being a, a someone good in this world um, is not the whole picture. Yes. And so, f- can we grapple with that honestly? That's the first. The second is. We are not going to get to a different future privileging the same voices. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to mm-hmm. happen. And I include myself in that. Like yes. I'm one of those voices that mm-hmm. um, has been privileged. If and and now I think more about like how do I make way for some other yes. voices and use mm-hmm. my privilege to make way. Um, I was talking to Aaron Crosby, who works at the Bud Center, uh, SMU's Bud Center, amazing leader, woman, person. And she really pushed me even beyond that. She said, it's not just voice. Uh, She didn't say it exactly like this, but this is my takeaway. My my takeaway was there's the, the, the sort of totally dark room of like, hey, we're giving money and we're doing backpacks with food three, you know, we're doing our part, Mm -hmm. totally dark room. Then there's the light on of like, you know, maybe it's a night light of, but we should we should ask people what they think and give them voice, right? So that's important and it's more than we were doing, but it is not the end. Mm-hmm. Where she pushed me was we, we will have arrived when the commu- when all communities in Dallas not only have voice, but they also vote. Mm-hmm. Like what they want has power. Mm-hmm. It's not just mm-hmm. airing their opinions, but they have the mm-hmm. capacity to vote and then veto. Hmm. That was really profound veto. for me. Tell, tell yeah, me more so about that. So like when, when things are getting, um, like if there's a big project that's going to be impacting a certain neighborhood, before no one in the neighborhood was even talked to, now we're breaking our arms, patting ourselves on the back, going on listening tours. Yes. That's great. It's better because we're giving voice. But we will have begun to arrive when those people are at the table and their vote counts as much as mine or yours. And then when we want to do something that they know is not right for their community, they have veto power. Which we see in prosperous communities in Dallas all the time. Exactly. I mean, if, if we want to put permanent supportive housing for homeless persons in prosperous communities, there is a hue and cry from those communities about not in my backyard, right? right? And so the NIMBY philosophy comes out, but it doesn't happen in underserved communities uh, in the same way. Those voices are not used to believing that they are heard. Right. They're not organized. They don't have a, 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 a sense that if they do gather to speak, they'll be taken seriously. And so this is the culture change politically that, that we need to see take place. Right. And, and it's, um, it's tricky because there's, there's where we are developmentally, there's a dark side of, the vo- of giving voice because mm-hmm. right now where we are developmentally, and it's still a pass-through and it's better than where we were, but right now we're at that space of you have voice until you say something I don't want to hear. Ah. Mm-hmm. Or you say something that's going to affect how much power I hold in this mm-hmm. world. Wow. Or make me look at myself and the fact that my long straw is directly connected to your short straw. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's not random. 
yeah. then you're then you get marginalized as a you know an angry person or um, uh, you know this this was too hard we should have done it ourselves to begin with you know so so we we have to go through some really painful things if we're going to get to the vote and veto you, you space. know it's 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 interesting you say that years ago I was with a, a broad-based organizing group in Dallas and uh, we were working on some public education reform and uh, we invited the school superintendent uh, to come to a rally and they had uh, a large number of people at uh, I think it was Lincoln High School and uh, we were standing in the wings I was standing next to the superintendent at the time and the people were chanting and they were ready to confront the, the administration and he sort of looked at me nervously and said George what am I getting into here and you know and, and it was that sort of knowing two prosperous white guys mm -hmm. who have a sense of power and an auditorium full mm -hmm. of people who are trying to gain their voice and to learn how to exercise their democratic um, uh, opportunity and it was a nervous moment mm -hmm. and I remember saying to him I get it mm -hmm. I, I get it but but let them speak just mm -hmm. go out there and be there and and, and we're going to get through this, mm -hmm. you know, but this is part of the process. Right. And it's this, it's this moment of realizing that we, we, everyone who needs to learn how to participate is not going to be as sophisticated as we would prefer them to be. Mm -hmm. In fact, we need to drop some of our sophistication so that we can actually be in relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's an awkward stage, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It can be an awkward stage. and. For me, it's helpful to think about like if it were flipped, mm -hmm. if I had generations of interactions and policies that uh, made my world smaller and harder, right. as opposed to, in my case, the opposite right. as a white woman, um, the, then then I would I would also be in that raw state. Yes, you know that that raw state is not a reflection of of a problem that they hold or even a lack of sophistication. It's a it's um, a reflection of the truth and the hardness of the truth that they have to to bear or to put forth, and the fact that there's a sort of a deep guttural knowing that that truth is going to disrupt the mm -hmm. power structure so mm -hmm. completely right. that there's no, there, there's little to no hope that it will actually be heard. Yes. And mm -hmm. I, that makes sense to me. Sure, sure. Which is all the more reason why those of us who do have access mm -hmm. uh, to power and to people in positions of authority have to play a mediating role in some way mm -hmm. uh, to, to help, um, n not because we're you know, special or whatever, but to use our privilege uh, by getting out of the way right. and by helping those voices speak. Well, let's continue this conversation after the break because there's lots more to say. So thank you, Michelle. Thank you. All right. The Good God Program is a project of Faith Commons a nonprofit organization I founded in 2018 to help promote the common good. Doing public theology across 
faith traditions and across racial and ethnic lines is an important thing today in our communities. We hope you'll continue to enjoy Good God, but look at some of the other things we're doing also through Faith Commons at www.faithcommons.org. We're back with Michelle Kinder, and Michelle, we were just talking about changing the political culture in ways that um, require us to think differently about our place in it and uh, who our neighbors are and uh, listening to all the voices of the community. Uh, but we, we also have a challenge in the nonprofit world um, where nonprofits are doing many wonderful things in our community and there is as you said earlier there's a two inch thick book that lists the number <laughs> of them there's loads of them loads of us at work out there but often working independent of one another uh, and uh, one of the challenges you've given us is to say how do we think about working together differently? How do we think more strategically about the transformation of our community, not just in this slice of it or this slice of it or this slice of it? So that's a, that's a, a challenge you've issued, and I'm wondering uh, where do we go from here with that? How do we begin to change the culture of the nonprofit world? Mm -hmm. This, this answer is going to seem so weird, George, but like I think there's some major truth in that and it's clearly a need but I also think it's a favorite rabbit trail hmm. um, so uh, like I often am in the room with people who are like you know what would make it work is if we had fewer nonprofits and we mm -hmm. consolidated and they worked better together and there were which I, I think might be true but I also think that that is a, a, a way and a place we jump on something that feels doable mm -hmm. and the way people jump on it actually is disempowering to communities and nonprofits and pulls energy away from problem okay. solving for the real stuff. So where my brain goes to is like it I think that that would happen naturally if nonprofits started to think about Nonprofits and funders, because that dance is 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 funding can direct mission instead of the organization. Yeah. Yes. Right. The, okay. So if the funders and the service providers begin to think about how do we want to exist in this world in a way that um, uh, brings like we were talking about earlier different voices to the problem solving table and creates. Um, creates missions and work that is not designed to plug a hole for life, mm -hmm. but is designed to get at the root of the problem. Okay. Um, Darren Babcock, who, who I think you know from Bonton Farms, mm -hmm, talks right, right. about mm -hmm. the rungs of the ladder, like mm -hmm. someone getting from homelessness to a sustainable right yeah. that, that there are rungs on the ladder that are missing right. and until we go at the rungs mm -hmm. um, we we are going to have nonprofits that look and feel good and continue to celebrate mm -hmm. 100 150 200 3,000 year anniversaries right. and and funders who continue to give tremendous amounts of money we this is mm -hmm. such a generous city right but we are not going to get at a true shift 
from let's um, continue to do good mm -hmm. to let's solve the problems. Right. Like let's actually solve the problems. Right. So yeah, like for example, what would it be like if in Dallas, um, African-American workers actually made the same as, uh, as, as white workers? What would it be like in Dallas if women uh, made the same as men? What would it be like in Dallas if the graduation rate from high school in uh, DISD were the same as it is in Plano, mm -hmm. for example, or in Highland Park? I mean, when you start talking like that, yes. now you're starting to get to some real differences of outcomes that we should be r really excited about pursuing instead of just do the kids have backpacks. Right, right. You know, so. And that, when you start thinking like that, then funders and nonprofits are going to organize around each other in a way that is not siloed. Mm -hmm. But if, if we come at it trying to just fix the silos, it's right. a rabbit trail, yeah. in my experience. Okay. It's just more meetings, more people meddling who are further away from the problem. Right. Um, right. But if we, can, if we could get everyone to start thinking in a visionary mm -hmm. way and start thinking about, there's a quote that I'm going to misquote, um, I think it's from the Op-Ed Project, but it's this idea that within every big intractable type problem, there are many solvable problems mm -hmm. and, and many of them are solvable right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we don't think like that. Right. We just think this is a big intractable problem and mm -hmm. people are hurting and we better show up for them. Right. Which is good. Like we, yeah. we wouldn't not want to be those people. We definitely want to do that, but it's mm -hmm. just, it's an, it's an endless cycle. Yes. And yeah. Well, we've seen we've seen some of this uh, take place, I think, in the Dallas schools mm -hmm. uh, in very positive ways, yes. right? Uh, so you you don't just have a, a a big massive problem that you say it's impossible and uh, where do you even begin? They actually decided to just begin. Yes. And uh, so they they began to do innovative things like actually putting the best teachers in the most vulnerable schools uh, with, with kids and paying them more and changing the way they went about that. Uh, we've, we've begun to recognize that if kids are ready to read when they start school, they can much more likely succeed throughout the entire time. And so we have pre-K and we've advocated for and gotten state funding. And there's a kind of flywheel effect yes. when that sort of thing begins to happen and people get excited and they say, we can change all of these things. It can be different. Yes, you know, yes, so. yes. That, that's, where I, that's where I think um, the shift is is coming and mm -hmm. and there are lots of people thinking like this right. so to me um 10 years from now the way that the funding community and the nonprofit community are going to be talking about the way we work together mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also work with communities mm -hmm. i hope we're really really embarrassed by how we talk about it today 10 years from now wow good yeah yeah and 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 I I expect three years from now to be embarrassed about what I think today, like because sure. I'm embarrassed about what I thought three years ago. So it's not like it's just can we get in there and grapple with it together and and right. move forward? Yeah. What's next for Michelle? 
So um, one of the things I'm doing that I'm really excited about is with Stegen Leadership Academy, we're launching a social change leadership program for women. Hmm. And it's a 52-week practice-based uh, course. It'll uh, pull from women acro from across the country. Um, it's funded by investors so that that isn't a reason you get in or out. Mm -hmm. um, applications opened yesterday and okay. uh, we'll launch our first class in January. And, the, and, and we'll, we'll err in the direction of underrepresented leaders. Mm -hmm. We're gonna be seeking to learn as much as we have to teach. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, the reason that that project is uh, important to me is because it feels like an operational way of lifting voices uh, that need to be heard. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so instead of myself jumping into another nonprofit or another cause, I feel interested in elevating and amplifying um, voices that are doing incredible work, but maybe mm -hmm. because of structural and personal um, things, they're at like a 100 watt when they have the capacity to be a thousand watt and mm -hmm. Stegen um, is a tremendous organization. They've been around 20 years. I studied with them as a student for okay. three. Um, it was transformational and uh, and they're a great partner in, in launching this class. So Good. Where do people go if they want to investigate this and maybe even sign up? Yeah, so you can uh, you can go to my website and sign up for updates okay. if they want to, which is michellekinder.com. They can also, um, there'll be a, a new Stegen website mid-September that'll have more information about it. Okay. But if they reach out to me directly, I can give them all the information and the link to the application and everything. So. Terrific. In the few minutes we have remaining, Michelle, I, being... Um, We've talked a lot about uh, the, the nonprofit community, the, the religious community, the, the, the church, the synagogue, mosques, the, the, the people of goodwill who are faith-based in their orientation uh, have a, a significant role to play in all of this uh, because this has also touched on your life and, and, and your background. Uh, what would you like to say to those of us who are trying to do our work uh, in this multi-faith environment in Dallas, uh, touching on a lot of the same things that other nonprofits are doing? Uh, is there a challenge you'd like to issue to us? Hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I learned watching my missionary dad um, and mom too, both of them embody this, this idea that there are no neutral interactions, that mm. everything either moves the ball forward, moves it back, or it's a missed opportunity. Okay. And so I would, I would think that if the faith communities started to like deeply embed themselves in that mindset of abundance that we were talking about mm -hmm. and just um, resonate with the kind of divine love that they have access to that maybe other people are feeling starved for, if they, if they could think of how that is going to show up in the world in every single interaction, um, it, to me that might be our best hope okay. at navigating this, this time that can feel so unsettling for so many people. One of the things I hope for is a, uh, a, a growing renewal of the faith community sense that while they need to have vital um, communities of faith 
congregations, you might say, uh, they don't exist for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, our, our, our congregations exist, yes, in part to nurture from generation to generation and to pass our faith mm -hmm. along, but, uh, but our faith is fundamentally about um, neighborliness, mm -hmm. uh, about the creation of a, a, a world that looks like what God dreams of, right. uh, that this is what's supposed to animate our lives. You know, we, we actually even get tax-exempt status locally. We don't have to pay property taxes and uh, these sorts of things. And, and, and the reason for that social contract is that there's a kind of assumption that we're going to be doing some things for the community uh, that would cost taxpayers to do it and would make it a government-oriented program. But if we're engaged in it, we, we, we're part of a dynamic partnership. Right. And if we're not, because we're so busy building our little kingdoms on corners, yes. uh, this is, this is a, a, a sort of violation, not only of the social contract, but I think also of our spiritual one. Mm. So. I love that. Yeah. I think that could not be more important, especially right now. Mm -hmm. um, silence around the kind of suffering people are experiencing right now is mm -hmm. experienced as deafening. Yeah. And so. And complicity. And complicity. Yeah. yeah. So, so yes, if, if all of our communities, um, religious and spiritual communities would show up in the way that you just talked about and and sort of be that guiding light going forward it would it would be um, it might be our best shot well you are a guiding light for mm. us and we're so grateful for all that you do in Dallas thank and George. beyond thank you for sharing with our good God community as well thank Glad you to have you so on. good to be here thank, thank you. you you're welcome Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2019 by Faith Commons.